Hello, and thank you for joining us today for another episode of the Journal of Neurophysiology's podcast series. With me today is Editor-in-Chief Professor Nina Ramirez and author Professor Christian Best of the manuscript titled Event-Related Synchronization, Desynchronization, and Functional Neuroanatomical Regions Associated with Fatigue Effects on Cognitive Flexibility. So let's get started. Over to you, Nino. Many thanks, Christian, and many thanks, uh, Jamie, for the introduction. Christian, I'm really delighted to talk to you about your paper today. And I think your paper addresses an issue which is particularly important right now. You know, multimedia use is dominating our life and it becomes increasingly normal to multitask. And we have to be able to quickly switch between different tasks, which requires, of course, considerable uh, cognitive flexibility. And you probably know that many students are texting and having conversation with several friends at the same time while listening to your lectures and while learning for an exam in your class, they also probably watch YouTube at the same time they try to learn. And of course, not everyone can handle this and the rate of ADHD is increasing dramatically. And at the core of all this is the question, how do we choose to coordinate and prioritize different tasks And how do we focus without getting fatigued by the same time? And I know from my own kids, they can't handle a movie that lasts for 45 minutes, especially if it is from the 80s. And uh, perhaps not surprisingly, and especially right now in times of COVID, we have an exponential rise in burnout. And your study addresses the important question, what is happening in our brain when we fatigue while pursuing our daily tasks? And from the neuroscience perspective, many of these processes are probably rooted in frontostriatal and presumably also thalamocortical networks that you studied in your paper uh, using EEG recordings. Now, your study is particularly interesting to me since it addresses also the role of rhythmic activity in the brain. And as you know, our brain is a rhythm machine and most areas generate rhythmic oscillation in multiple frequency bands. And rhythmic activity can synchronize, can desynchronize. And I believe your study can provide really deep insights into their functional relevance. So, but before we get into the significance of rhythmic activity, why don't we start with discussing your experimental approach and the specific questions that you address. So my first question therefore, Christian, why did you use the working memory modulated task question to measure fatigability effects on cognitive flexibility And why did you not use just more simple task-switching paradigms? Christian. Yeah, thank you, Nino, for having me here. It's really a pleasure to contribute to your podcast initiative. And um, as to your question, well, the choice of the task is actually motivated by the theoretical background of the study. And the theoretical background of the study is very much rooted in the so-called opportunity cost model. And what this model states is that fatigability or fatigue effects in general are most likely to occur in the prefrontal cortex. And the reason uh, in this model is, or the assumed um, cause is, that especially the prefrontal cortex is um, subject to simultaneity constraints. So you cannot really handle two different tasks taxing prefrontal cortical functions at once. So the prefrontal cortex neural assemblies always have to choose what kind of task is to prioritize. 
And uh, with the idea that especially the prefrontal cortex function should show considerable fatigability effects, we thought about a task that is taxing prefrontal cortical functions quite a bit. So we know from literature that task switching performance is taxing uh, prefrontal cortical functions and the same is true for working memory processes. So we have two different uh, processes, task switching and working memory, which if we can combine these two different cognitive processes in the, in the same task, should maximally tax prefrontal cortex functions and therefore should allow to reliably uh, assess fatigability effects in this sort uh, of uh, cognitive flexibility. So the choice behind the task is very much driven by the theory that was motivating the entire series of study. And this is actually the reason why we did not go for a more, let's say, uh, Rogers and Monzel standard or classical task switching paradigm, but thought about this working memory based enrichment. So to tax prefrontal uh, cortical functions to the max. That was the idea. Wonderful. Now you studied in this context, uh, theta, alpha, and beta frequency bands. And for the general listener, could you describe perhaps the characteristics of each of these frequency bands and how they interact and what you can learn from them? And finally, why did you consider multiple frequency bands in your analysis instead of just one? Yeah, basically there are different possible functional significances of the different frequency bands. So for example, theta frequency band has quite often been brought into connection with working memory maintenance. This is one aspect why we studied theta frequency oscillations there, but it's also a very important frequency band when it comes to cognitive flexibility and cognitive control processes, because the biophysical principles of theta band activity or this high amplitude, low frequency oscillation um, enable a kind of integration of different forms of sorts of information across distant brain areas, which is, as we know, very important for cognitive flexibility processes. This is why we focus on the theta frequency band. And when you go, for example, to the alpha frequency band, it has also been brought into connection with working memory updating processes and some sort of an inhibitory gating or gating controlled processes to a global workspace, which is also very much important in the context of working memory modulated um, task switching process. And last but not least, the beta frequency band is sort of a frequency band which is highly co-modulated with theta frequencies, especially theta frequencies. And it has also kind of an important function when it comes to the cognitive control and the monitoring of ongoing aspects in the environment, because it is said to uh, monitor the status quo of the cognitive system. And it is the status quo of the cognitive system that very much needs to be updated throughout cognitive flexibility processes. And that's basically the reason why we thought, okay, it is not enough, especially when we are talking about cognitive flex flexibility and fatigability effects to restrict our data analysis on the theta frequency oscillations, but to broaden the picture a bit to other adjacent frequency bands, like it is, for example, the case in the alpha frequency band and the beta frequency band. Wonderful. So before we go into the interaction between these different beta frequencies, Maybe you talked about the opportunity cost model already, 
And uh, what can you learn about the cost now when you characterize changes in rhythmicity? Yeah. Well, I mean, the opportunity cost model is very much about the degree of effort person is investing in a task. So this model assumes that when you invest some effort in a task, the costs of doing so are being represented. And what's actually uh, interesting, and this is also one reason why we first sort of uh, very much including the theta frequency band is that this sort of decision process is also coded in theta frequency oscillations. And we know also from other studies of our own group that, for example, effort, as you can capture it, for example, by pupil diameter modulation, is very much linked to the theta frequency oscillatory activity. And this is why I would think that especially theta frequency activity can actually capture the effort-related processes assumed by the opportunity cost model. And since it is the effort which is, let's say, the driving force behind the feeling of being fatigued, it is actually a very good candidate to look at the neural dynamics of this opportunity cost model. Very, very interesting. So I, I think along the same lines here, now what implications do the findings have regarding fatigability effects on oscillatory activity? More, more precisely, why do you think that the alpha and the theta rhythm play the biggest role in fatigability modulations? And do the two rhythms have opposite or actually synergistic roles? Yeah. So when you take, let's say, a more bird's eye perspective on the literature that's being published in the field of uh, cognitive fatigability and fatigue, you will see that many, many studies look at the theta frequency band. And from some perspective, you may get the impression that it is very much the theta frequency band that is, let's say, responsible or that's being modulated by fatigability effects. However, the point is that very many studies uh, examining fatigability effects do this using cognitive control tasks. So tasks that are itself taxing the theta frequency band quite a bit. And what's my personal impression about the field is that the um, yeah, assumption that theta is very important for fatigability effects stems from the fact that many studies are actually investigating fatigability in tasks or using tasks which are itself very much uh, taxing the theta frequency oscillation or are relying on cognitive processes that are very much um, reliant on medial frontal theta band activity. However, if you now broaden the perspective and look at cognitive um, tasks that are nevertheless very taxing for prefrontal structures, like it is the case here for the working memory modulated uh, cognitive flexibility task, you see that especially also alpha frequency modulations come into play. And to me, this suggests that it is not that much the theta frequency band which is important for fatigability effects, but it is very much important to really consider the basic neural dynamics that is underlying the cognitive process being under investigation or which is uh, under investigation of fatigability effects. So if there is a cognitive function that is heavily relying on the beta frequency activity, you will also see fatigability effects associated with beta and maybe less with theta. 
It very much depends on the cognitive process that you are looking at and where you are investigating fatigability effects that may provide some idea about the neural signature of the neurophysiological processes that are actually underlying fatigability. So fatigability is not a function of a particular frequency band. It is modulating various frequency bands depending on the task that is being examined. Thanks so much, Christian. Now I can imagine that the biggest effect on changing in the rhythms is due to an increased synchronization or desynchronization. And uh, that is related, for example, to attention. And uh, you discuss, for example, the posterior alpha rhythm reflects the state of the anticipatory visual attention and that the reduction synchronization may reflect fatigue. So what does it really mean basically for the different frequencies when you have a change in synchronization and desynchronization and in particular with relation to uh, attention? Mm -hmm. Well, for this uh, alpha frequency oscillation, um, there are, there's one important point necessary to distinguish. So in the paradigm we used, we had sort of a queuing interval. There was a dummy queue that was signaling when to expect another stimulus upon which a response rule has to be executed. So we have sort of a preparatory phase where you can have some sort of anticipatory attentional processes. But, and what our source localization uh, using EEG beamforming shows is that not only posterior brain regions are activated, but also brain regions in the superior frontal cortex, which is kind of important because there it is assumed that task sets are being maintained that need to be hold online in order to be accessible once the task set is required to execute a response. And what has been around since I think 14 years right now is the so-called inhibition timing hypothesis of the alpha band. And what's being assumed there is that especially alpha synchronization processes are very much important for the so-called inhibitory gating process. So these alpha frequency synchronization process provide some sort of an inhibitory control against distracting information. So in some sense, they can shield information that's being held online against distracting or interfering processes. So they try to inhibit all other sorts of information that are probably not important for the upcoming task. And this is particularly important here because we use a working memory modulated cognitive flexibility. And with this sort of alpha-based um, shielding of working memory information, the uh, participant uh, is enabled to very much um, yeah, secure the relevant task set for some sort of interfering information. And once you are more on the task and once you are yeah, working on the task for increasing duration, the alpha band synchronization and therefore this inhibitory gating control weakens. And while it weakens with time on task, you get more prone to interferences by other task set and so forth and so on. And this actually um, reduces your performance as compared to a situation where you have not been that long with the time on task. I mean, what we did in this study, uh, we had different blocks where we conducted the experiment and overall there were nearly 3000 trials. So people did the task for almost two hours without any break in between. 
which is quite exhausting. Yeah, and then you can imagine that when working on the last trials, let's say the last 700 trials as compared to the first 700 trials is actually a huge difference. And this difference is very much reflected by the alpha frequency um, activity. And after the target stimulus comes in, uh, alpha desynchronization processes come in. So these desynchronization processes are, let's say, sort of a release of this inhibitory control which is also important because in, you have to engage in some sort of a response selection process. You cannot really stick to the shielding of your working memory engram. So therefore it is necessary that you really release your inhibitory control and that's being uh, reflected by alpha synchronization, desynchronization processes and the modulation by time on task. Christian, wow, you know what this, makes a lot of sense to me and finally explains a lot of things to me because I used to teach EEG to students and we would take EEGs from the students and, and basically looking at the alpha rhythms. And some kids were just amazing in, in how they can generate a huge alpha rhythm and others had a hard time. So basically, if you're able to generate a strong alpha rhythm, you can basically shut down a lot of your other thoughts and, and probably focus in simple terms, correct? It was yeah. interesting that one of the students was um, almost deaf. She couldn't hear much. And, and she was actually the best in generating the algorithm. So it, it was incredible, you know, so probably she could shut down the environment and all the influences and, and focus on the algorithm. Now, the other rhythm, the, the opposing rhythm kind of is, is the theta rhythm. And you discussed the role of the theta rhythm in different parts of the parietal and the frontal cortices. And this activity has been associated with goal-directed behaviors. Now, is the activity in these regions therefore a readout for the cost or efforts or the processing resource allocation needed to make decisions and to maintain attention? Yes, this is most likely the case. So what we know about, especially medial prefrontal theta oscillations, is that they are sought to reflect the need for cognitive control. So whenever you encounter a situation that is not straightforward, where you really have to engage in your executive function abilities or in cognitive control, the theta frequency or the medial uh, prefrontal theta frequency is triggered and sort of allocates also processing resources or cognitive control resources to um, the task at hand. And when you now consider the opportunity cost model, for example, it is especially the decision which aspect is to uh, focus and how do uh, or how must processing resources be allocated. And in some sense, this could be sort of a guiding mechanism also connected with um, the alpha oscillations we have seen and the effects in the alpha oscillations. So one may speculate that both of these different frequency bands are somehow related in that uh, the theta frequency band first detects some need of cognitive control and then triggers some sort of alpha band activity to really shield working memory processes before they become uh, distracted. And this is maybe the interrelation of the different frequency bands. And that's also the reason why in the particular task that we have been using, we see strongest effects in the theta frequency band and the alpha frequency band, 
but less consistent effects in the beta frequency band. So in the task that we have been using, it's all about the alpha and the uh, theta frequency band and not that much about the beta frequency band. Christian, Christian, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, so thanks so much. That is really a great explanation. Now, how much individual variability do you see in your subjects? And I assume that age affects the relationship between alpha and theta rhythms in particular, since the algorithm does change with development. So when you, for example, look at a juvenile person, a teenager versus an old person, how does this change? Yeah, um, so we deliberately choose a quite of a homogeneous um, age sample, which is actually a student population between 20 and uh, 25 years of age, I think. And um, initially we recruited uh, 50 volunteers. And um, at the end, we ended up with about 30, uh, 35 participants, I think it was. Yeah, 33, yeah. And the reason for that is that many of the participants we have been, or we uh, invited to take part in the study, actually canceled the study after two blocks or after the third block, because they could not really uh, go on with the task for that long time. So I think there are, first of all, inter-individual differences in how tolerant people are with these really exhausting time on task effects. And what we also see, especially in the neurophysiological signal, that the intra-individual variability also increases with time on task. So at the very beginning of the experiment, and also when you uh, look, for example, at some indices of how reliable face locking is uh, across trials, the face locking is kind of high at the very beginning of the task, and then with time on task, the face locking or the reliability of the face synchronization processes also become worse. And there are many, many factors that may contribute to this individual reliability. One is motivation, for example. Another one is also the sleep and wake cycle. So all of the participants were invited at the very same time, but you can imagine that uh, coming to the lab at uh, nine o'clock in the morning is not uh, very much preferred to, to uh, everybody. And uh, this may also cause some inter-individual differences. And there are many, many factors that cause not really explainable variants in such um, experiments and data, which is also one reason I think that such fatigability studies really need high power in terms of the number of participants that are included in such uh, studies. And you really have to take care about the dropout and to plan this in advance because you will definitely encounter a high dropout in participants for various reasons. Interesting. I mean, like, wow. I mean, we're interested in the effect of media use. And, and I could imagine that this has also a big effect and especially if they let's say are gaming the whole night and yeah. the attention span is very very short and and you know like these fast-paced media will will probably increase the fatigability and it would be really fascinating to look also at the 30 year old for the 40 year olds you know and and yeah definitely so i mean the uh, age question is definitely one that we want to pursue in some or uh, through the grant application as well so to see in how far uh, younger uh, or adolescent people 
are able to do this time on task experiment and the very same is true for elderly participants yeah especially with elderly participants we do have the experience that they are much higher motivated than younger participants so it may well happen that the high degree of motivation to take part in such an experiment and to see okay how good am i cognitively is really triggering lots of motivation and it may well happen that uh, fatigability effects when looking at an individual level are maybe even a bit less than it is the case for a younger population because there are so many differences in the degree of motivation to take part in such investigations and to really look okay hey am i cognitively fit or not this is really driving uh, performance in especially elderly people. Yeah, and, and as I said, I mean, the elderly people didn't know, grow up with all the media, like the, the, sure. the little ones. So it, it could be very interesting. I mean, fascinating questions and also fascinating approach to actually get there. So also a practical question, you know, when you look at your data on fatigability, what can you learn about changes in people with burnout or other forms of fatigue? Yeah, actually, one of the next steps that we want to take in our research is, and this is what we are currently working on, to uh, enroll uh, people suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome or uh, burnout. And what we would think is that when we, for example, would take this sort of task, we are ex or we expect to see the same effects in the theta frequency band, for example, as well as in the alpha frequency band. So in the sorts of cognitive processes of inhibiting a working memory, um, engram used for cognitive flexibility and the other uh, cognitive processes that I discussed previously to be related with the theta frequency band. But I would suggest that we very much see a decline also in these neurophysiological signatures way more early than we do this for this healthy control group of people. So I would think that, yeah, we have some ideas what neurophysiological mechanisms may become important in chronic fatigue syndrome. But I would also say as initially um, answer to your very first question or one of the first questions, is that also the signature or the neurophysiological signature of chronic uh, fatigue syndrome also very much depends on the task that you are using. So in this task, we may see alpha and theta frequency band activity. In other tasks where, for example, this inhibitory shielding is less important, you may then also not so much see changes in alpha frequency band, but more in the dynamics of other frequency bands that are more important to the task at hand. So I would think this fatigability is sort of a first step into um, yeah, some knowledge about what may go on in chronic fatigue, but chronic fatigue is a more long-term state and you don't really know what this more long-term state does with brain structure and also the neurophysiological processes. So I wouldn't think that fatigability effects on a neurophysiological level and fatigue effects on a neurophysiological level are exactly the same. I think that there are some differences, but it will be very important and interesting to see what these differences actually are. 
Yeah, Christian, I think this all relates to the question that fatigue is not fatigue. You know, like there are different forms of fatigue. And, and how similar do you think uh, these patterns are and the effect on the patterns when considering classical fatigue or the fatigue when you get tired in the evening? Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the major drawbacks, I think, uh, generally in the field is that there is no really clear-cut definition about what is fatigue and what is fatigability. And this is sort of impeding, I think, the entire field. I mean, it is always the same when you do not really have very clear-cut definitions about the research subjects, how can you do good science with it? So, I mean, we are approaching this question more and more, but I would think what's really needed in the field is a clear-cut definition about cognitive fatigue, cognitive fatigability, and the same is the case for motor fatigue and motor fatigability. Yeah? And what's really needed is sort of a very clear and objective marker about yeah, fatigue, because all we have is some self-reported measure, am I fatigued or am I not fatigued? But there is no clear-cut, let's say, neurophysiological or physiological marker in general that is very much indicative and reliable for the degree of fatigue of an individual. Yeah, this is really what's, what's lacking in the field. And I would think that once this is um, evident, I think many of these studies' results will need refinement because what's being considered as fatigue may be something different. You know about the overlap with depression and anxiety. These are very important aspects that need to be considered. And um, yeah, we will see in how far studies that have been published are actually more into the dimension of depression or a mixture of depression, fatigue, anxiety, and that force. Fascinating. And, and maybe we stay at this whole question about implications for disease. And yeah. uh, in particular, ADHD and autism. So would you expect like opposite outcomes in ADHD versus autism? Like I, I've, I've seen like some autism patients, you know, they can focus incredibly well. Like if they have to shoot a, a basketball hoop, they don't get distracted by all the noises. They can focus and kind of opposite to the ADHD. And um, so do you think you can use your study as a readout or a characterization or symptoms characterization of, of these disorders? Well, maybe, because, I mean, when you are looking at the literature on um, autism spectrum disorders, ASD or ADHD, what you see is that many studies, especially when using EEG, are um, reporting differences in ADHD, especially in theta and alpha frequency oscillations. And so this may make us think about that ADHD people are more prone to these fatigability effects, which is also kind of logical if you look at the clinical manifestation of um, these patients. And when you consider ASD, for example, I mean, there have been efforts by uh, software companies to hire ASD patients to prune some computer code and so forth because they can really think in the detail and they do not really get exhausted by all of these things. And I would say when you compare ADHD patients and ASD patients in this uh, kind of task, it may be possible that you hardly find fatigability effects in an ASD sample, whereas you will surely see 
strong fatigability effects at an even shorter time scale in the ADHD sample as compared to controls. So I would think that it is not that much to the reverse or that the neurophysiological processes are reversing, but I would say, yeah, uh, when you're looking at the neurophysiological signatures, the effects that we have been describing here in our study occur earlier in an ADHD sample than it is the case in an ASD sample. Interesting. Now, another set of disorders, of course, are neurodegenerative disorders that associate with uh, cognitive impairment like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. And uh, these disorders are associated and related to increased fatigue and decreased uh, cognitive flexibility. Now, could you speculate and predict an outcome from your studies if you would take patients with this kind of problems? Mm. Yeah, I think especially Parkinson's disease would be very interesting to look at also because fatigability is sort of a major facet in this neurological disease. And when you especially think about the role of the dopaminergic system in Parkinson's disease and the role of the dopaminergic or the catecholaminergic system in general uh, for effort, then you would say, okay, hey, uh, people with Parkinson's disease show deficiencies in the catecholaminergic system and the dopaminergic system in particular. And therefore they show dysfunctions in neurotransmitter systems that are very important to increase effort in difficult situations. And when you now think about um, the opportunity cost model that fatigability is nothing else than kind of an altered balance between how much effort do I want to invest in task A and how much in uh, effort could I invest in task B, it could be that especially uh, Parkinson's disease shows some very, very strong fatigability effects that then can be attributed to the, let's say, insufficiency to really increase effort or cognitive effort in cognitively demanding situations or to keep a reasonable high level of effort with time on task. Interesting. Uh, Christian, could you imagine to go one step further and say, hey, can we use the lessons learned on, on the frequency bands to actually characterize disorders? You know, like let's say, instead of saying an autistic kid has these and these symptoms, look at the relationship of theta bands and alpha bands and thereby use this as a, an identification of a disease. Yeah, so this is definitely also one effort we um, have been doing in, in the last few years. So this is not very much related to, to a fatigability, but to the method of EEG and oscillatory activity as a whole. And what we did is we uh, applied machine learning approaches, so support vector machine approaches or deep learning approaches in this regard. And what we have seen there is that we actually can, um, yeah, obtain quite high, let's say, accuracies in dissociating between two different classes or groups of participants, maybe ADHD versus controls or other um, patient groups and um, so forth. The problem with this approach, I would think, is that your definition of the group is solely based on the definition that's being brought to you by the clinicians and that's being brought to you by the current status of the field. And in 
that far it is also kind of a problem why are we so optimistic that let's say machine learning and deep learning may be let's say very much to the benefit for us when we come to our diagnosis because at, at, at present all what we have is the clinical diagnosis we can use this in some sort of machine learning studies but the result very much depends on the reliability of the diagnosis And I wouldn't see that we can really detach from this because we are very much reliant on that. So it's kind of a circle that we are in. And um, I would say um, we need a completely different strategy. So we first have to say, okay, hey, in some sort of unsupervised learning approaches, for example, can you tell us apart the current sample in two different groups? And then afterwards, we have to see in how far participants being uh, ascribed to one group also fit a clinical diagnosis. But then the question is, um, we really have to take more care about the people that have not been successfully been ascribed to one group instead of always looking, okay, how successful was this endeavor? We really have to take care about When does this classification using such uh, deep learning or machine learning approaches fail? Because the participants or the data where this has failed is actually the data where we can learn most. And this is not done in the field, at least in my impression. I mean, that is totally fascinating. I think it's really an important problem that has to be solved. I mean, in psychiatry is, is you know, like how do we reconcile the phenomenal, the symptoms with actually the brain activity. And, and ultimately, you know, the brain activity is your, your currency for, for all this, you know, like where the rhythmicity is actually what gives rise to all these uh, differences. And, and one of the big problems, as you know, is like to, to define autism and every child is different. And maybe this uh, combination would help us a lot. It would also probably help us to understand, you know, how drugs are affecting you know like you could look at how ritalin changes this relationship or dopa l-dopa etc so so i i think it's fascinating and uh now could you use biofeedback neurobiofeedback to affect some of these rhythms and thereby also alter fatigue and increase cognitive flexibility well i think yes so in principle yes i mean what's being done in the neurofeedback area is to modulate let's say, theta frequency and beta frequency activity, you can for sure do with alpha frequency activity. At present, I would say we are not really close to it because what our data has shown is that actually, yeah, network activity is important to consider. However, when you are now looking at the current practice of neurofeedback, you are usually using neurofeedback with a couple of electrodes, one, two, three, or four, But from that data, we can really say, okay, hey, it is an interaction of prefrontal or posterior theta and alpha frequency processes. And when you are really interested in, let's say, modulating all of these functions by um, neurofeedback, you really have to think about the way you administer your neurofeedback because then you have to do network-based neurofeedback And this is not at least currently done in the field. And this is definitely a way to go, but I think we have to develop the neurofeedback technique even more to be more capable about network activity 
because without network activity, you won't really be able uh, to, to modulate complex phenomena like fatigue, which our study uh, shows is sort of a brain network phenomenon. Interesting. And um, well, along the same lines is the, the chicken and egg question, you know? So are your changes in the rhythmicity actually consequence of fatigue? or cautiously involved in the genesis of fatigue. So how do you imagine would a change in rhythmicity and synchrony alter attention and induce fatigue? And, and maybe could you, for example, train your alpha rhythm in order to, to be more focused? Or can you train your theta rhythm to be more flexible? Yeah, I would think that this is actually uh, possible. I mean, there's always this egg problem but I mean, when we are, for example, looking in uh, studies, which are, we are now planning, where we will investigate people with uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, we at least have an idea, okay, what's the neurophysiological signature or the network signature of the uh, participants prior to an examination? And in how far does this differ from a group of uh, participants uh, which is not characterized by chronic fatigue syndrome? And then we have a clue in how far uh, this, let's say, network state prior to such an experiment can tell us something about the neurodynamics and the velocity of uh, the neurophysiological changes in various sorts of frequency bands. And I think that this cannot really resolve this egg problem, but it can approach the question at least in how far um, changes are, let's say, contributing to fatigability or are maybe also a cause of fatigue. Yeah? And regarding to your last part of the question, I would think, yes, you can train this. And I think we do not really need to rely on neurofeedback uh, approaches in this regard. You may also think, about uh, brain stimulation approaches. So take, for example, the field of transcranial alternating current stimulation, yeah, where you, you thought that you can entrain different frequency bands at very specific frequencies. And what may happen is that when you are running such an investigation like this, and when you uh, get people fatigued, and when you then entrain, for example, alpha frequency activity or theta frequency activity, it may well happen that through this brain stimulation-based entrainment of oscillatory activity, you also reduce the level of fatigability. So I think that by means of the brain stimulation approach, you can really provide some causal mechanistic insights into the role of these frequency oscillations for uh, the phenomena at hand. Christian, that's fascinating. Now, Instead of TMS, I mean, yoga is often used to become focused. And, and how do you think this will affect the relationship of alpha and theta rhythms? And, and now I want to speculate, but, you know, the theta rhythm is, is very close to the breathing rhythm. And there's beautiful work done by Andreas Dragoon, you know, where prefrontal cortex is generating rhythmic activity in phase with the breathing rhythm. So... So do you think that actually yoga may be one way to actually entrain your rhythms and, and thereby achieve the effect that we just discussed? Yeah, I would definitely think so. I mean, it is not just yoga, but you could also think about uh, mindfulness-based uh, training where you can have different sorts of 
trainings, for example, focused mindfulness or open mindfulness training. We have been doing a study there on this sort of task switching. And what we showed there is that when you are focusing too much, you are actually um, decreasing your cognitive flexibility, which is very well in line with uh, theoretical uh, propositions. So, I mean, if you do yoga, you should not really expect that you are doing better in this sort of cognitive flexibility. What might happen is that you are actually worse in cognitive flexibility, but on the other hand, that the fatigability effect is not that strong. But in the other case, you can then also argue whether this is not simply a floor effect because my cognitive flexibility level is not that high. Yeah, There is less room for fatigability um, effects and it may well happen that, okay, you are reducing your initial performance in cognitive flexibility, but are then able to really maintain that level over longer periods of time. Wow, Christian, fascinating. I think we can talk forever here now. So, so let me just ask you, what are the next steps from here? And I think you, you talked already about the development and, and I think maybe you can summarize some of your ideas where you go from here. Yeah, so one uh, step or one very clear step ahead of us is the investigation um, of chronic fatigue syndrome um, patients. But we are also thinking about a direction, for example, in, uh, in uh, multiple sclerosis, for example. And as you may know, fatigue and fatigability is really a really severe issue when it comes to the clinical treatment of, of uh, multiple sclerosis, because, I mean, no treatment that's available for multiple sclerosis is actually, um, yeah, sort of reducing the level of fatigability and getting to know more about fatigability and how patients with multiple sclerosis, for example, become fatigued by working experience and whatever may also help these patients to better structure their tasks at hand, to better structure their working day and that force. So I think there are many, let's say, more practical research questions, especially when it comes to uh, neurological uh, patient groups, where this sort of research can also have implications that are then valuable for the clinical counseling of that patients. Wow. Thank you so much. So, Christian, what are the important take-home messages you want the listeners to remember? Well, I think there are a couple. So, on the one hand, I think it's important to get that fatigability or time on task effects are very complex in nature. It's not just a single neural or neurophysiological process that can uh, determine this fatigability effect. It is really a complex aspect where not only different neurophysiological processes have to be considered, but also different functional neuroanatomical structures. And it is, let's say, the combination of neurophysiology and neuroanatomy that makes this complex picture, because um, this is one of the second or, or the second take-home message. Fatigability is a brain-wide process, and this brain-wide process makes it also sort of difficult at least to um, tackle fatigability, for example, with brain stimulation approaches or neurofeedback approaches. But I would think, and this is at least from my perspective, more important that many more people should enter the field doing research in this regard, because what I feel is there is research in psychological science going on, especially clinical psychology, 
and there is research in neuroscience going on. But these different research communities are not really talking to each other. They do have good concepts, but these concepts need stronger connection in order to drive the field forward. And I would wish for the future that this is going to happen. Christian, yeah, I, I, I am so excited, especially by your last important point, because I think, you know, your study is really a roadmap, a fundamental approach to change how we think about psychiatry and how we can use neuroscience insights into diagnosing, subdividing and, and defining disorders like, like what is chronic fatigue? What is fatigue? What is ADHD? What is distraction, et cetera? So, so I think using EEGs uh, uh, should be really very important. What do you think about MEGs, by the way, as an approach to, to get more, even more detailed insights into the location of these? Yeah, areas? definitely. So this is definitely a very valuable uh, method. And I mean, we are somewhat limited in our spatial resolution. Um, okay, we did this um, EEG beamforming um, approach and the sources we get there make sense in terms of previous literature and in terms of uh, the theoretical concept. But in any case, some more precision in the localization is, I think, um, desirable. But I would also say it really has to have a theoretical meaning. So to me, it doesn't make much sense to go on with, let's say, fascinating techniques if there is not really a theoretical implication that can be conveyed by that. So only doing fancy method without any connection to a theoretical framework is to me not the way I would go at least. <laughs> yeah, okay. We'll we'll get fancy at the time we need it to, you know. So it's it's very cool. Christian, it was a great pleasure talking to you and and I hope you continue publishing with us. Alles alles gute und herzlichen Dank. Ne? Alles klar, danke dir, schönen Tag noch, ne? Yes, yeah, okay. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.